This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. I have been waiting many months to be able to introduce my 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 next guest, Andrew Wakefield. Hi, <laughs> oh, it's great to be with you. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Uh, you are, for probably, in my view, all the correct reasons, one of the most hated scientists, former scientists. Are you a former scientist, former doctor? I don't know. I don't know that you ever stop doing these things. You stop being paid for doing them. You stop doing them officially, but... I don't think you ever stop being those people, but uh, no, I principally a filmmaker. But let's get on to the most important stuff: whiskey or bourbon? You, you know, sailors. I'm a sailor. I live on a boat, so rum tends to be my medicine. <laughs> well, I, I don't mind that at all either. That's a pretty good drink. How do you drink your rum? Just with ice? Uh, so it depends. What? <laughs> yes. Yeah, just with ice is great, but there's there's this mixture called a rum bamboozle, which we made up on a particular sailing trip, and that goes that's kind of orange and uh, fresh orange juice and and uh, tonic water it goes down rather well. You've published over 140 papers, I think. Is that right? Yeah, about 150 now. Well, no, we we found a possible cause of Crohn's disease, which is still out there as as mm. a possible cause, and that was related to atypical patterns of exposure to viruses such as measles mm. exposure in the womb or exposure very early in life or exposure in combination measles plus another virus at the same time so it was a very exciting period of of work we did and um it's still out there it's never been dismissed but it's the research has largely been abandoned because it's unfunded because it's politically incorrect yeah 1998 i mean that that's known as as the year all hell broke loose when when Andrew Wakefield uh, came onto the scene. I mean, one paper caused havoc. It did. We we published a paper which was essentially just a very very simple case report. And and for your listeners, for your viewers, mm. the way in which medical syndromes are first described is in a handful of people. A handful of people or maybe even one person who presents with a pattern of signs and symptoms of disease that are so unusual and so idiosyncratic that they merit publication in their own right. And mm -hmm. so you make a clinical observation or a set of observations in a group of patients. And in this case, it was autistic regression in previously normal children, gastrointestinal symptoms, which turned out to be associated with inflammation of the intestine a unique pattern of inflammation and and exposure to the MMR vaccine. So normal kids mm. get the MMR vaccine and a short period of time later they just descend into autism. They lose all their skills, their interaction, their speech, language, socialization, and they indulge in a series of bizarre repetitive behaviors and and ultimately get a diagnosis of autism. And so that syndrome, that constellation of features was what we described in 19, uh, 1998. And that has since been confirmed worldwide. But because everything we described was synonymous with possible vaccine injury, mm. then it has been crushed 
beyond recognition. It has been uh, disallowed and disavowed by mainstream medicine and the pharmaceutical industry in particular. Yes, I came from a family of doctors that went back six generations. We all trained at St. Mary's Hospital in London, in Paddington, and graduated from that medical school. I was entirely mainstream. I had a kind of fast-track career as a, initially as a surgeon, then as a gastroenterologist, scientist, looking at inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. And then... Uh, and everything was going fantastically, swimmingly well, had a big research team publishing a lot of papers until in May of 1994, mothers started coming to me saying my child was perfectly normal. Then they had this vaccine and then they weren't. Short time afterwards, they had a seizure. They went to sleep for three days. They woke up. They were never the same child again. The light in their eyes had gone out and they'd lost all those skills that I just mentioned. And so, and I said, look, I'm a gastroenterologist. I know nothing about autism. You know, when I was at medical school, we weren't taught about it. One in 10,000 people, children, was the sort of cited number of, mm -hmm. of cases. It was so rare that no one taught us about it. And so what can I do? And I said, the reason we're coming to you is because uh, my child, uh, has terrible gastrointestinal problems, terrible diarrhea, bloating, pain. He's lost the ability to speak, but I know as his mother that he's in pain, I can tell. And um, the doctors and the nurses are completely dismissive. They say that's just part of autism, forget about it, put him in a home, move on, have another baby. I mean, it was just appalling. That was the medical response to this. Uh, autism in the minds of med medical practitioners was all in the mind. It was a psychological problem. And so, we took it very seriously and I, I decided that as a physician I had a professional and moral obligation to investigate this. So I put together a team of, of world experts, an Australian gastroenterologist working in London called John Walker-Smith who was the world's leading pediatric gastroenterologist at the time and his team and my team and we we took a look at this and, and lo and behold the parents were absolutely right. The children had a, an inflammatory bowel disease that when we treated it with diet and standard medication you would use for Crohn's, not only did the bowel symptoms get better, but the brain got better. The children started speaking. They started interacting, socializing, laughing, using words they hadn't used for five years. It was an extraordinary situation. But as gastroenterologists and scientists, we said that didn't happen. And we did it 180 times and it happened every time. And then we said, okay, this is for real. And so, but the problem came when, as you say, when that paper was published, the first paper describing the initial 10, uh, 12 children in 1998. And that brought the heavens down upon us. The pharmaceutical industry, the government, public health, pediatricians, it was open season. And uh, at that stage, you, we could either walk away I could either say I work for the drug companies and public health or do I work for that child sitting opposite me whose life has been taken away from him and for me that was an easy choice. My colleagues not so much but for me that's what I signed up for in medicine was to put patients first and that's not meant to sound sanctimonious it's just a simple fact of life and so I chose that and it was uh, an interesting journey from that point on.
Andrew, I am yet to see anybody who's taken as many bullets as you. Why? Well, I think it operates on two levels. One is that you're challenging a huge economic infrastructure, and that's vaccines. And of course, if you undermine public trust in one vaccine, you do so for all, because if they've labeled that safe and effective, and that was a lie, then is everything else a lie? And that's one big thing they cannot tolerate. Because they targeted, for example, measles for global eradication using the vaccine. If someone comes along and says, actually, hold on, guys, there's a problem with this vaccine, particularly when used in combination with mumps and rubella, then that whole program falls apart. So that's number one. Number two is there is a philosophical, a, an emotional, a societal belief at a, a almost a religious level amongst many, many people that vaccines are the best thing that medicine has ever done. So if, particularly if you talk to those indoctrinated within public health, then you cannot question vaccines. And indeed, my colleagues in this research program who were pediatricians came to me and said, Andy, as pediatricians, we cannot be seen to question the safety of measles vaccine, of MMR vaccine. What does that mean? That's not a scientific stance. That's not a medical, a medically ethic, ethical and defensible stance. That is just about respectability. What will my colleagues say and think of me if I go off on this, this research project? Mm. So that was tragic to me and made me rather angry and made me in fact want to work even harder on it because uh, it ignored the impact on children, the suffering, the death, the everything they were going through. The fact that their lives and the lives of their founders had been completely destroyed beyond recognition seemed secondary or indeed irrelevant compared with the social standing of, of my colleagues amongst their professional peers. And that just made me very angry. We, what's interesting is that we'd seen Crohn's in relation to measles vaccine, single measles vaccine. But this syndrome of regressive autism and, and bowel disease was new and it was unusual and we'd never seen it with the use of the single vaccines. I say never, I'd seen one child of those 100, 183 children we investigated at the Royal Free. There was one boy from uh, the Middle East who had received his first measles vaccine at six months and then another vaccine, another single measles vaccine at one year. Very unusual exposure, not a recommended exposure at all. And he was profoundly autistic. That's the only case I'd seen. Every other one that we'd seen where there was a vaccine association, it was with the MMR vaccine and the escalation in numbers had only started with the introduction of the MMR. So that to me seemed to be a particular concern. So I went back to study all the safety data on MMR thinking, well, they must have studied the combination. They must have studied various permutations for a long time to determine that this was safe. No, absolutely not. It was stated quite clearly by the Minister, the Officer of Health in charge of vaccination in the UK, Dr. David Salisbury, that they had assumed that giving three together would be just as safe as giving one mm. on its own. That is so naive. That is so yeah. bizarrely naive. You're planning to give this to every child in the world in two, three doses, and, and you will make an assumption 
that it's safer, that is unforgivable. And I believe it's led to all kinds of problems, not only for MMR, but for other vaccines as well. These unwarranted assumptions made on behalf of mankind. Yeah, there's a, a distinct lack of informed consent. And it's amazing how little doctors know about vaccines. Their training in vaccinology is one day or half a day in their entire medical curriculum. And it's really about the official schedule, whether it's the CDC or the Department of Health or whatever the South African equivalent is. And uh, that's it. And from then on, they, they give vaccines as pediatricians, general practitioners, and they make a great deal of money doing so. There's a huge financial incentive to meet your targets, to make sure that every child within your practice is fully vaccinated. I remember one pediatrician from Virginia went on, he, was, he gave a talk in a presentation to the state legislature and said in giving up vaccination, stopping vaccinating his patients, he was losing $700,000 a year. That gives you some idea Sheesh. of the incentive for continuing uh, to push vaccines in the way that it, it, it's done. Wow. What happened to you after that 1998 paper uh, uh, in The Lancet? What happened? How long have we gone? <laughs> <laughs> as long as you want. I, I, uh, I, have, a, I have a bourbon. <laughs> well... A lot of things went on in the background. Firstly, the Department of Health weren't ready for this. They had no tactical, no strategic approach to dealing with an insider coming forward and saying, we've got scientific evidence that there's a problem and here's the logic behind it. So in the end, what happened is that the industry uh, in the form of GlaxoSmithKline recruited Rupert Murdoch's son from News International, James Murdoch, to the board uh, and he became a non-executive director, and his job was to protect that industry within the media, the reputation of that industry. And I was his target, and he came after me, and he got a, a journalist or a, a, a freelance journalist to come after me in the biggest way. And they chose a person who is in many ways sociopathic and had no care what lies he tells. He just takes the most extraordinary risks because they have the power, they have the control, they have the headlines, they have the, uh, the editorial. I don't. So it was um, me against uh, a very big operation, uh, which I was unaware of initially until it broke. And when the story broke, it, was, it, it really took on a whole new flavor. So what that led to was um, three of us, three of the colleagues, my, two, of my, two of my colleagues and myself, who were involved in that initial Lancet study being hauled up in front of the General Medical Council, our medical regulator, accused of malpractice, having no ethical approval, abuse of children, all kinds of things. I'll summarize that. We were all found guilty, completely guilty. We were Two of us were struck off the medical register. And then it went for the first time before a proper judiciary, before the English High Court, before Justice Mitting. Justice Mitting demolished the General Medical Council. He said they were not fit to hear evidence and this must never happen again. They were, it was per, a perverse abuse of the process and they had no idea how to deal with evidence. They were biased and uh, anyway, John Walker Smith was completely reinstated. He, I was not funded to appeal 
to the English High Court. He was. I couldn't afford it. So even though I stood with him on these issues, uh, I didn't get my license back because I could not appeal. Uh, so but the, the point is that the case against the Lancet paper against us was demolished in the English High Court. That never made the media. That got one tiny little column in the, the Independent, I think, nothing, nothing more, because no one wanted that message to be heard. Mm. And so I carried on the work. I came to America, carried on here, set up a center for children with autism, and we, we, it was going very well. And they kept coming after me. And then, in desperation, they accused me of scientific fraud. The journalist Brian Deere said it was all made up, and he managed to get the British Medical Journal to buy into that story. It was a complete and utter fabrication, demonstrably so, and has been analyzed to the nth degree to show not only that I did not commit fraud, but the British Medical Journal and Brian Deere committed fraud. And I'll give you just one example, just for the very beginning of their paper, the very beginning of their first paper, so, and then you can read the rest on your own, but this sets the tone. They said in those papers, which were basically a demolition of me and my career saying I was a fraud, they said this: these papers have been externally peer-reviewed. What that does is give the paper the imprinter of having been assessed by an independent scientist of good standing who says, yes, I've checked all the facts, and they stand up. That paper was never, not once, externally peer-reviewed, and that is a fact. And so... Not only are they liars, but they are themselves frauds and have set out to deceive the medical profession because everybody who read that believed in the scientific integrity of their commentary because they claimed it had been scientifically peer-reviewed. It had not. So that's just the beginning. You can read that. It just goes on and on and on. But nonetheless, that set the tone for what characterized their assassination of me. So at that point... What had happened to me is that I, over the years, because of the position I'd taken, people had come to me from industry, people had come to me from federal agencies, government agencies concerned with vaccine regulation and safety, and said, we have done a terrible thing. Not only have we done a terrible thing, but here is the evidence, and given me the evidence. So I became a repository, if you like, for whistleblowers, and I had these extraordinary stories so I came to the point that I, I was a great fan of film and started screenwriting some 23, four years ago. Um, I thought, right, I'm going to turn these into films. I'm going to become a filmmaker. I'm going to yeah. become your worst enemy. I'm going to go inside this. And, and Vaxxed was a classic story yeah. of an insider coming forward and saying, I can no longer live with the fact that for 14 years we have known that you, Andrew Wakefield, were right. That we have looked at the role of MMR vaccine and autism and shown a very high risk in those associated with early exposure to the vaccine, a precise hypothesis that I had shared with them some years before. I went to them and I said, look, here are our ideas. We believe it's not every kid. Clearly, everybody gets MMR, not everybody gets autism. So yeah. why some? Why not others? Is it age of exposure? Is that one factor? The younger you get it, the greater the risk. Why? Because the younger you get certain infections, like measles, the greater the risk of that infection being serious. So intuitively, is the immune system not fully developed or developed enough to deal with the infection? So 
they went away and they tested that hypothesis and they found it to be precisely true. And that's what they covered up. And that's what we revealed in VAX. So VAX had a dual role. Not only did it, it expose this extraordinary mm. fraud, this violation of human rights by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, but it also confirmed that our original thinking on this, the parents' original thinking, was absolutely right. So it was a huge film, a huge mm. film. And it was a huge film, as you know, because it got into Tribeca. One yeah, <laughs> Robert De Niro. <laughs> oh, Lord. And so we were delighted, of course. Robert De Niro has a, a vaccine-inched child with severe autism. And, you know, it was kind of, a, mm. it all was congruent and made sense. And it was going to play at this film festival. And suddenly pharmaceutical interests that were involved in sponsorship of that film festival said ah kill it this film will not play or we pull our sponsorship mm. so the next thing i got was a call saying the film's been pulled three days later robert de niro discovered what had happened and he went on the today show good morning america all the big news outlets to talk about tribeca and all he wanted to talk about was the film that Vaxed. didn't play. Yeah. And they could not shut him up. It was He was so angry. And he said, everybody should see this film. Make up your own minds. We should not have pulled it. And it just exploded worldwide. I don't know, Andrew, if we should feel sorry for him. I mean, he. I watched an interview with him, and he, he said he didn't want to bring the film festival into disrepute or into any kind of controversy. Are we, are we letting him off the hook? Oh, yeah. No, he should never have done it. You don't, if you are a documentary filmmaker, yeah. you don't yeah. do the documentary unless there's an element of controversy to it. Mm. Where's the fun? Where's the entertainment? Where's the message? Where's the learning in that documentary? I was once taken off a film, a documentary, because they said, I'm sorry, your interview was very good, but it was too controversial. I said, you know what? You're in the wrong business. You shouldn't be making documentaries. Mm. Documentaries are intended to provoke a reaction, a discussion, a debate. There is intended to be an element of controversy, but if there isn't, then you don't have a documentary. You don't have anything worth hearing. And um, and they anyway. So yes, he should never have done it. Mm. Uh, never have done it. But he was grossly misled, and you know he's a, he's a, an actor and not a scientist, and so I guess he felt vulnerable. But you know, you still do not do that. You don't, in a particularly in an independent film festival, you don't censor. Mm. Once you censor, you are on a rocky road. Yeah, there's no end to what can be extracted from you by the sponsors if you bow down to them. Um, it's sort of centered around a top scientist at the CDC um, and a and uh, a hidden phone call. Uh, am I am I correct? Yeah, so he made a series of phone calls mm. to Brian Hook. Brian Hook is a scientist in Northern California with a vaccine-injured son with autism. And he called Brian and started to confess because Brian had been in communication with him over the years about freedom of information requests that Brian had filed with the CDC. And, and um, William Thompson was handling some of those. So what happened was Brian called me and said, Andy, I've got this extraordinary story. And I'd mm. been dealing with whistleblowers for a while. And I said, Brian, you've got to record that conversation. 
He said, oh, I don't think I can. Brian, you have got to record that conversation. There are too many lives at stake. What he's telling you can help save a lot of children's lives. And it has done. And so he recorded it and it became the centerpiece of the film. People have then said, oh, you edited that, you, you cut it to make it sound. No, no, we didn't actually. We told the story as it is. And so, yeah, it was an extraordinary story. The, 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 I don't know whether you've seen 1986, the act. Have you seen the latest I, one? I haven't seen it. I, I apologize. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 not at all. But that, that's a film that has resonates worldwide because it's a film about why we are where we are in the world now with COVID and vaccines, an understanding of the catastrophic situation that came about when we gave, when the American government gave ta uh, the vaccine makers um, a immunity. liability market. They gave them immunity. Now what mm. that did, that was an extraordinarily dangerous thing to do. And it resonates worldwide, the consequences of that, because when they took away liability for vaccine injury and death, what, this, what the drug companies had at that stage was an extraordinary opportunity. They had a mandated market in America. Kids had to get their vaccines to go to school and no liability. All they could do was make a massive profit. And that's what they did. And they scaled up the vaccine schedule dramatically, introducing new vaccines because they could not be held accountable for anything that went wrong with those yeah. vaccines. Now, what that happened, why is, the, why is that relevant to the rest of the world? Why is that relevant to COVID? Why is that relevant to where we are now? Because they became so powerful, so rich from that act, from the sale of vaccines, that they came to buy and own politicians. They wrote policy. They owned the medical profession. They, they paid for medical training. They bought all the medical journals. They owned the medical journals through advertising and through direct ownership. They owned the media, they controlled the headlines, they controlled what was said and what wasn't said, and they owned everything. And that was a global agenda, that wasn't a local agenda. And so now, for example, for COVID vaccines, they've been able to push those through almost completely untested. Vac vaccines. With no liability. Yeah, vaccines, with no liability. Yeah. There's no liability for anyone in the supply chain of these COVID vaccines. Well, they're not vaccines, Andrew. They're not vaccines. No, it's, they're not even vaccines. Yeah. Let's not even call them vaccines. You're quite right. They're experimental biological products, live agents that have the ability to reproduce themselves. When you put them in, you can't switch them off. I mean, they are a nightmare. They're rather like Jurassic Park that's about to escape the island. In fact, mm. has escaped the island. But Andrew, you you're just a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist now. Yes, I get that I'm not a theorist. I tend to deal with fact. I deal exclusively with fact. I you know, and where I articulate theories or hypotheses, I make that absolutely clear. But my life is involved with determining what are the facts and then putting those into film, distilling those into film so that people can see the facts so i may be a conspiracy factist whatever that is but that's where you're at now you're you're now you're now able to share a message through the beauty of storytelling 
you you've said in a previous interview uh, that uh, that we're all storytellers or that we all have stories to tell and that's what you're doing now through the medium of film yes i think film is an extremely powerful way of communicating story i mean we're dealing with very complex issues so i see my job as taking these complex issues and distilling them down into the nuts and bolts of the story mm. and then making them entertaining you have to make a film entertaining if you do not make a film entertaining it doesn't matter how good it is it doesn't matter what story it tells people will switch off they'll go to sleep they'll leave the theater because you've got to entertain them first get them sitting forward in their seats and then communicate the message and the message mm. must be true it must be honest it must be based upon the facts as i said so i i love storytelling and one thing i'm able to do now is to take complex stories of legislation litigation medical science and put them into a format that uh and this was an interesting one in, in the last film we i had no way of doing it. how did i do how did i this could have been the most boring story in the world story about a law that was passed in 1986 and all of the everything that went on after that and the medical science behind it it would even have your most ardent fan asleep in 10 minutes so i had to come up with a way of doing it and the way i i was at a fundraiser in los angeles and there was a celebrity couple there a uh, very well known celebrity couple and they got up at the end and they said we've got to get behind this film we've got to do whatever we can to support it and i thought i know what you can do you can be mr and mrs smith and you can be having the same discussion around the kitchen table that every parent in the world is having now about vaccine do i don't i what's real what's not real the same arguments the same controversy the same conflict between husband and wife you can be having those and you can be expecting your first baby mm-hmm. and so i couldn't track them down after that i couldn't find them again to do it but i got two very good actors and so the film is now framed around exactly that couple gets pregnant late in life for the first time very precious baby she has an instinctive feeling that there's something here there's something wrong mm. are we going to vaccinate yeah of course we're going to vaccinate and then they get into the debate then they get into the discussion and he says what about polio and storms out of the room and slams the door like that's the end of the debate okay it's over because i've said polio or smallpox okay so uh and so the story unfolds and it's his journey the arc of his journey from know nothing skeptic critical of his wife's to understanding that actually her innate ability her instinct that's something that about her and she goes she she makes him come on that journey with her to to understand the science and so you unfold the science unpackage it within the context of this couple going on that journey and it's important we are engaged as an audience now because their journey is our journey their questions are our questions and their outcome is our outcome after watching vax something that occurred to me is why would we vaccinate a perfectly healthy child well it's become a, an extremely irrelevant question in many many ways and one that progressively i didn't come to this as you can imagine i my children my first two children were vaccinated um i should have done the research earlier but i didn't i wasn't anti-vax i've now come to a position where 
I, if, and the only honest answer I give, can give, people say to me, what should I do? I say, it's not my job to tell you what to do. That's not my job. My job is to present you with the facts and allow you to make up my, your own mind. But the only honest answer I can provide is if I were a new father today, what would I do? If I had a baby born today, what would I do? I wouldn't give them any vaccines. And that's the truth. And that comes about after 30 years of working in this field. And there are many reasons for that, both positive and negative. But one of the positive reasons is the healthiest children I've ever seen, and I've seen thousands of them, are the unvaccinated. They are astonishingly healthy. They are what children should be. They look like what children should be. And they are bright and alert and engaged and attentive. And that is a very challenging position to present to the medical profession now, yeah. particularly those yeah. who believe that vaccines are man's great savior. That after years of study, I'm far from being convinced about that. And indeed, we now see a plethora of autoimmune, immune-mediated diseases in people we never saw before. Epidemics of asthma, eczema, hay fever, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, multiple sclerosis, things that are in young people. We never saw them. They didn't exist when I was a, when I was a child. So something has gone horribly wrong with the evolutionary steps in the human immune system that have led to chronic disease. Are you talking about and vaccines in general? Sorry. Are you talking just about yes. vaccines in general? I'm talking about vaccines in general. Even something like a rabies vaccine. Rabies vaccine, one of the worst. So it was invented by Louis Pasteur. I don't think it's changed terribly much from that point forward. That was a very long time ago. He made it in a bucket in the back of the, the back of his shed, you know. Please, you know, it's funny. No, it's funny that you mentioned Louis Pasteur, Andrew. Um, I'm currently reading a few books, and one of them is called uh, Bekamp or Pasteur, and I think it was written in 1940 something. Um, and it's basically the um, it's basically the biography of both of the two scientists, um, and it kind of reveals what a what a fraud Louis Pasteur was. Well, there was, uh, they, yeah, there was a great deal of, I, I know, and it depends, of course, who's writing this thing. I'd love to read that book. But, um, yeah, there was so much at stake in terms of being a savior of mankind, not only financially mm. at stake, but also in terms of your status, your legacy. And so this has plagued vaccination policy, and it seems to be plaguing it currently as well with people like Bill Gates and Fauci. I, I, the same megalomaniacal story is playing out oh come on andrew they're just they're just well-meaning uh individuals who have the world's best interests at heart oh yeah you're right i'm sorry you know i forget <laughs> what was i thinking yeah i think the first thing is your your point is right they're not vaccines they're not vaccines as we understand them so in a vaccine you inject and what you inject elicits an immune response Live, viral, live viruses also go on to replicate, but what you inject elicits directly an immune response that is meant to be protective against future exposure. What we're doing with these vaccines is injecting either uh, Frankenstein viruses, hybrids between two viruses that nature has never seen before, 
or the messenger RNA from the coronavirus, specific elements of the coronavirus, that once put into the body enter our own cells and turn that cell into a factory for putting out the protein of the virus, particularly, for example, the spike protein. So each of our cells becomes a little factory to produce viral mm. proteins in a way that it's never been instructed to do so before. And the problem with that process is that one is it's completely untested, it's never been tried in humans, at least knowingly, before. Number two is that once it's in, you cannot switch it on. Number three, and I heard this interview the other day, and it reflects that same naivete of its assumption that is made, is a scientist who was a vaccinologist himself, said it was assumed that when it was injected, it would remain at the injection site. But when they looked, it spread across the body and high levels of spike protein were found in all tissues, including very high levels in the ovaries. Now, here's the bizarre thing. There was no right whatsoever to make that assumption. You're going to plan to give this to every living person on the planet, and you are going to make an assumption as basic as when you inject it, it's going to stay at the injection site. That is criminally insane or so stupid it barely registers on the IQ scale. It is phenomenally dangerous to make any assumptions about live or replicating biological agents. You can't do it. And one thing that this has taught me, studying in particular measles over 30 years, is you must accord these infectious agents the greatest of respect. Because if you do not, they will come back to haunt you in the biggest way. And they won't do it immediately. It won't happen straight away. But when it happens, it will be memorable. Uh, as far as I know, I mean, mRNA has never been approved on humans in history. No, it hasn't, and it, uh, nor should it ever have been. And of course, when, yeah, uh, we're running into the sort of problems now that were anticipated mm. by the scientists who urged their bosses in Pfizer, for example, to exercise caution, exercise, urged the regulators in Europe to exercise caution. I was listening to a, an interview from an English scientist who was uh, head of research at Pfizer saying, we've never done this before. This is potentially highly dangerous. We should not even consider widespread use of this vaccine until long-term safety data are available. And that was ignored and they went straight to delivering it into humans because there was a political imperative and a financial imperative to do it. And so a lot of people have made a lot of money and they don't mm -hmm. care. For them now, they don't care, they've got their money. They don't care if the vaccine works or doesn't work, who it hurts, whether the company succeeds or fails in the long term. Their job is done, and that is to take their 30 pieces of silver. Are you, are you referring to Mike Eden? Mike Eden, absolutely. Yeah. How were vaccines identified as the possible cause? Firstly, from the clinical history. So listening to parents, I can't emphasize this enough to everybody, including the medical profession. The roots, the understanding of the origins of diseases, uh, of disease syndromes comes from listening to the patient's history. 
or listening to the mother's history of what happened to her child. So that's the beginning. So the mother says, my child was absolutely fine. I wasn't anti-vaccine. I took my child to be vaccinated with this vaccine. And in the time, at the time in the UK, MMR was given alone. It was given in isolation. So you couldn't confuse it with Hib or polio or other vaccine. And they said within a very short time, he had a fever, he had a seizure, he went to sleep, he woke up, he was never the same. That kind of story. And then he developed terrible gastrointestinal problems. So within the, the history, you have there the clues that you need as a doctor to start pursuing the origins of this condition. And that is to look for aberrations of the immune system, to look for aberrations in the gastrointestinal tract, mm -hmm. including, as, as was mentioned, uh, you know, inflammation, immunity, um, the gut bacteria, the diet, and the, the link to the vaccine the link to is the virus still in there if it's causing this inflammation is it sitting in the inflamed intestine can we find it so you set up a series of studies to do that and you find it or you don't find it but that's that's the way in which you go about it and it's a sort of tried and tested strategy in medicine hypothesis testing strategy you set it up you set up the question and then you go about answering it in a systematic way and ultimately you hope to come to a conclusion as your mm. uh, as the person who articulated the question uh, asked is that says yes this is due to the virus or no this is not due to the virus and in, at the same time you're doing what are called epi epidemiological or population-based studies looking at large groups for example those who got MMR and those who didn't get MMR or those who got MMR at 6 to 12 months versus those who got MMR at 18 to 24 months to say, is there a greater risk in one group or the other? So mm. in parallel, doing all of these studies with the ultimate aim of determining whether or not that virus vaccine is the cause of that problem. Yeah, and I mean, you've, you've made it very clear that you need to listen to the mothers and, and fathers uh, and not dismiss them. I mean, listen to this comment. My cousin got autism after his MMR vaccine, we believe. He was perfect. He was a perfectly healthy boy with no issues. And after that particular vaccine, he changed fairly drastically. He's now 18 and he still acts like an eight-year-old. Yeah, and I sadly, sadly, I've heard that story thousands of times. And it's so clear, so obvious and articulated by people who have nothing else to gain from telling you their story. Nothing else to gain. Mm -hmm. They went, they took the child to be vaccinated and they still have the wisdom to say, we believe. In other words, to qualify their, whether the vaccine is involved with the disease. That is a very sane and sensible person putting forward that suggestion. And yet it's dismissed by the medical profession as oh no you don't know what you're talking about i'm mm. the doctor i'm oh, the man in the white it's Who just a coincidence I mean, yeah and uh, without ever understanding the origins of medicine how doctors came to learn about disease they didn't learn because they were geniuses in a laboratory sitting up late into the night they learned because they listened to their patients yeah that's lost today isn't it doctors don't listen they don't yeah. find out the history of their patients anymore. Yeah. 
Ruth wants to know um, if there's a correlation uh, between ADHD and autism um, and, and your thoughts. Thank you, Ruth. Yes, uh, the latest study on this was done by Brian Hooker, um, working in collaboration with Dr. Paul Thomas, a pediatrician. And the answer is that what he compared are, is the long-term health outcomes in vaccinated and unvaccinated children. That's the sort of key baseline study that should be done. That's the only way of determining the risks and benefits of vaccines, to look at the long-term health outcomes in completely unvaccinated versus fully vaccinated. When that kind of study was done by Dr. Ryan Hooker, and this is peer-reviewed and published, then ADHD emerged as a very high risk in the vaccinees. So did autism. And so these two diseases appear to be linked in as much that they're not only behavioral disorders, they involve disorders of certain behaviors in children, but they have a common link in vaccination. So, so I, I just bumped my microphone. Um, the, would that include things like uh, struggling to concentrate? I mean, these are very sort of uh, metaphysical conditions and they're difficult to prove, but do you think there is a connection? Yes, I do, absolutely. And I think that ADHD, ADD are they're ge- very genuine disorders and they are highly prevalent within populations at the moment, particularly in America, very, very common. They Are they overdiagnosed? May well be, because there is a an incentive to put children on Adderall, on other medication. Ritalin. The, yes, absolutely. The, the, the mm. doctors are rewarded for doing so. So are they overdiagnosed? I've no evidence for that, but is it possible? Most certainly. Nonetheless, there is a real increase in what is generally uh, genuinely characterized as these these behavioral disorders. Uh, Yo, Andrew, it's kind of sad because there are so many millions, so many millions of kids and people like myself who've been vaccinated and it cannot be reversed uh, it it's almost as if it's it's almost like it's a battle that can't be won it is extremely alarming we're going to need to completely rethink this whole thing and i think one of the the silver lining of covid mm. is that it has caused more people than ever before to question this issue vaccine safety mandatory vaccination the ethics of what is going on who's winning what's the gain um and so i went to a meeting recently in tampa there were eleven thousand people i've never spoken before eleven thousand people at a single meeting there were millions online tuned into this meeting all those people had come there because they believed in freedom they were patriots and they believe particularly, because this is what the meeting was about, in health freedom. Mm. Their body, their choice. Their dominion over their own body. What went into it? And they were being told, you've got to get a mandatory COVID vaccine. They're saying, forget it. No way. I've got a gun, buddy. This is a country with a second amendment. You want to vaccinate me? I've got a gun. Okay, so people are really waking up in very large numbers and are very, very angry. So the silver lining of COVID 
is that now the world is waking mm. up. And you see the protests. You see the protests in Europe and London. People are fed up with being deceived by governments, by public relations companies, by advertising companies. It's, it's one big grand lie, I'm afraid. What are your views on all the criticisms that you've received? There are loads of supposed published papers that have completely quote-unquote debunked uh, the links between MMR vaccines and autism. I've no evidence at all that they're manipulated. They're flawed. There are major um, flaws in those studies. Um, for example, in the Danish study, they compared vaccinated and unvaccinated children of completely different ages. There was an overlap, but they were of different ages, and they would have missed any association between vaccination and autism. So, but that was hailed as one of the most important studies of all. What the criticisms of me are irrelevant. Mm. Okay, this is not about me. It's dressed up to look like it's about me. You know, you're the villain. You're the poster boy for all of this villainy that's going on. But it's not really about me at all. They don't know Andrew Wakefield, the person. They don't know what motivates me. What makes me get out of bed in the morning they have, a, they have no idea they don't care no, but it is care. easy to go after the individual because your hope in going after the individual and destroying them is that they will stop they will be so beaten down and ashamed and uh, unable to hold their head up in public that they they give up the work and the problem goes away well I'm not about to do that that's number one number two is that it's about something far more important. It's about the health and well-being of the children of this world and therefore the world's future. And so what is said and done about to me is utterly irrelevant mm. in comparison. So they can do and say what they like. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, I will continue to do what I do until there's no breath left in my body because it is extremely important and uh, it's important not only for my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren but the world's grandchildren and so forth so um, yeah bring it on it doesn't really matter do you know of any studies uh, someone is asking now uh, of any studies comparing autism amongst unvaccinated and vaccinated kids yes and that is in that same study by Brian Hooker. So please look it up. Uh, Hooker, H-O-O-K-E-R, Brian. And he and, and that same study, that autism rate in those two groups is reported in that study. You've got a crystal ball in front of you. What do you see? What I see is a very, very difficult time ahead. The world is dividing into two groups. Those who have listened to the message and have believed and have been fully vaccinated, among whom there has been a high mortality and morbidity, unlike anything we've ever seen with any other vaccine. Let's call it a vaccine just for simplicity's sake. Mm -hmm. With COVID vaccines, we are seeing a rate of mortality, a rate of reported deaths and injuries in excess of anything that's ever been reported before. Mm. 
and it's just the beginning. And we will see a great deal more of that because immune consequences of vaccines take a while to manifest. There will be a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth, I'm afraid. There will be a lot of suffering. Not only that, of course, we have the consequential suffering of uh, upon economic collapse, personal and nations. And then there are those people who didn't get vaccinated. And my belief is that we need to protect them and keep them safe because those people, those children, as I've said, are unvaccinated children are the healthiest I've ever seen. They are the kind of children in whom the future should be invested. They're smart, articulate, clever, physically adept. And um, that is the way the world is, is dividing at the moment, as I see it. And sometimes I have to sit on the moon and look down at the earth and say, you know, I have to take myself away from it because it becomes so intense. It becomes so full on for so long. And 30 years is a very long time to have been in this. But that is, but man will survive. We are at the moment in, there have been five major extinction events in the geological history of this planet. The last took away the dinosaurs. Now we're in a, a, a sixth extinction event where our birth rate is exceeded by our death rate. The population is aging. It's rather like that extraordinary film by Alfonso Cuaron, The Children of Men, I recommend it to you. And we are seeing a decline in population which will be dramatic worldwide over the next 20 to 30 years. If that is sustained, we are in an extinction event and we are witnessing infertility in men and women as never before. There are many factors that play into that. But if we continue on that trajectory, then theoretically man is destined to become extinct. That is a possibility. The difference between this and other major extinction events is that this is man-made. You cannot prevent a meteorite crashing into the Yucatan Peninsula and causing a, an ice age. But there are many elements to this that we can prevent. And so, and I believe we will. I remain an, an optimist. And I think that our desire for survival will allow many of us ultimately to make the right choices, the right decisions. But it's going to be a very, very cold winter. And I think we need to be prepared for that. Yeah, I've, I mean, if you've seen Game of Thrones, uh, what winter is coming. Winter is coming. How do you talk to people about MM, MMR vaccines? I mean, for a lot of people um, like myself, um, I am fortunate in the sense that I speak to wonderful people like you um, and I, I take in a lot, but the average person doesn't. And so they go on with what they think they know or what they think is best. And if you if you say to them, look, maybe give MMR a second thought with your upcoming baby, they will call you a, 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 a crackpot or a, a quack. Now, what's wrong with you? You know, you you anti science. How do you how do you how do you engage in well, a meaningful way? I say, look, take this film and watch it. This is a 
this is a member of the Centers for Disease Control, a senior scientist, telling us his story. This is not my story. It's not Del Bigtree, my producer's story. It's no one else's story. It's his story. Okay, so listen, watch this film, and then let's have this conversation. And that's the reason for making the films, is to do the heavy lifting. Here are all the facts. You can take issue with them if you want, but at least listen, at least watch it and then see. And it, that film has changed so many people's minds. So many people. I remember one pediatrician coming, being dragged, kicking and screaming to a, a, a film, a screening of the film in Southern California. Huge theater full of people. And he sat on the front row on the right hand side. And we had a panel discussion at the end. And he was brought there by a mother of one of his patients. And at the end of the movie, he stood up and the room went silent. And he said, I just want to apologize to everybody in this room for the way in which I've practiced medicine for the last 25 years. Sure. He said, I can't practice in the same way again. And that was it. That's the kind of impact this storytelling has. So my suggestion is to people is to do exactly that. Take a look at this film and then let's have this conversation. Okay, one last question from Ruth again. Because um, she's asked this question a few times, hoping that I'll notice. So here it is. Um, uh, <laughs> well done, Ruth. Love to see Andrew, you. does the damage of vaccination pass on from mother to child? Yes, it can. I mean, Mothers given high levels of mercury, for example, when thimerosal was a preservative in many of the vaccines. Yes, mercury, aluminum, which is used as an adjuvant to poison the immune system, to boost the immune response. These things can potentially, they can cross the placenta. So yes, is the answer. Um, damaging chemicals, excipients, byproducts can be passed on. Can live viruses be passed on? Yes, they can. And it's in the product insert, for example, for the for the uh, rubella vaccine that that that, that virus can pass transplacentally. So, and that that pertains also to uh, other live viruses. So, the answer is yes. I think being vaccine aware is on the right side of history for sure. Andrew, you are a true gentleman. Um, I'm remarkably disappointed in this conversation because i was expecting you to be this awful person that the that the media and wikipedia have made you out to be i'm sorry to disappoint <laughs> <laughs> my name is germ this is germ warfare i love ideas if you enjoyed this podcast please visit supportgerm.com 